Welcome back to Techtopia, the podcast about a better future. I'm John Biggs. Today on the show, we have David Weinberger. He's an author and early internet user. This is Technotopia. Hi, guys. Real quick before I start, I do a lot of hiring. I, uh, I have a number of businesses that I'm working on, and one of the tools that I like to use is called ZipRecruiter. Let me tell you a little bit about it. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards. You don't have to visit all the job boards. It basically does it for you. Uh, they also have matching technology. ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invite them to apply to your job. It reaches out to candidates so you don't have to. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. And ZipRecruiter is so effective that 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. 80% in one day. <clears throat> With results like that, it's no wonder that ZipRecruiter is the highest rated hiring site in America. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash techno. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash techno, T-E-C-H-N-O. ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire. Welcome back to Technotopia, the podcast about a better future. I'm John Biggs. Today on the show, we have David Weinberger. Uh, David is a giant in the world of the internet. Uh, you're one of the co-authors of Clue Train Manifesto. Now you're writing a book about the future. Uh, and you were recommended by John Sunman. So, uh, so I'm really excited about this. Uh, anything, if John recommended me, then I, my self-esteem has gone up. Uh, he's, he's a phenomenal know, right? writer and people who are not reading his novels are, are missing out on a really wonderful talent. Yeah, it, it drives it drives me nuts. He's in he's in Martha's Vineyard and uh, and he's and he's he's writing these massive tomes about uh, about stuff that we were we were only dreaming about uh, ten years ago, and now all of a sudden all this stuff's coming to fruition. Yeah, and just but, so um, we don't frighten people so, off, they're not all massive. I mean, some of them are quite short. And one of my favorite, which is yeah, cheap yeah. complex devices, is actually really really short and just um, I can't even describe it. Anyway, John's great. Mm -hmm. Anyway, yeah, John's great. Um, okay. So I want to, I want to talk to you a little bit about what you've been working on right now. You're working on a book about the future of, of some sort. <laughs> yes. It's an oddball book. It's been <laughs> difficult to write and I'm in the final terminal stages of it one way or another. Uh, mm -hmm. um, the idea is that, um, in various ways, um, I think that our idea about how the future happens, how things change, how the world works, which are all the same thing, basically. Have mm -hmm. the, our basic sort of paradigm for that has shifted under our nose in part because, well, a lot of things, but in part because of the internet. And then I've been really interested and involved in machine learning issues as well, which I think is also beginning mm -hmm. to drive this, this shift. Okay. So we've got a, what, what does, uh, what does the future look like uh, in terms of machine learning in the in the next five years? From what from your research, from the folks you've talked to, what does it look like? Well, I, uh, so one of the points of the book is just how radically unpredictable the world is. So I don't know um, mm -hmm. if we just simply extrapolate <laughs> from where we are. Um, it will be uh, it, it's used all over the place, and um, nobody uh, cares when it works. Um, and in many applications where there are not obvious ethical or fairness issues that come to the fore, but it's an incredibly powerful and such a different way for computers to work that it's, it's 
being used everywhere. Um, and I assume because it works, um, it will continue to be, and we'll get very used to the idea. At the same time, you know, I, I've been at the Harvard Berkman Klein Center for Internet Society for like 15 years, and that's mm -hmm. one of the places, uh, among others, where there is a huge amount of uh, interest and focus, attention, intelligence being applied to, and and uh, moral. Um, moral stances of being moral about these things um, mm -hmm. being applied to the question, some of the questions surrounding machine learning. Um, and I, I have no idea how that will shake out. Um, the questions around fairness, um, transparency um, are, are really, really difficult. Um, they're difficult uh, just on their own when dealing with machine learning. The fundamental issue is that well, I guess it's twofold. Uh, the first is that mm -hmm. machine learning constructs its own model. Basically, it programs itself based upon the data that we give it, and this is an astounding step forward. I mean, it's a really epical mm -hmm. step forward. Um, but it means that at least in some instances, the model of whatever domain that the machine learning is dealing with, whether it's how to you know how to route cars or how to play Go or predict the weather, et cetera. The models that it makes can be difficult or I will say impossible for humans to understand. And so we are relying upon uh, the machine. And there are certain types of questions that we can't get good answers to from it. Nevertheless, the stuff seems to work. So there are concerns that because it, it is machine learning is building models based upon the data that we give it, um, it's programming itself, that data always reflects human biases, human failings, you know, historic data, mm -hmm. as they say, uh, which just is the same thing as data. It re reflects, um, no matter how hard we try, we can never be 100% confident that the data that we're collecting is not reflecting, data that we're collecting is not reflecting uh, human prejudices, biases, unfairnesses that have been built into our various social systems mm -hmm. forever. And so you don't want machine learning to be teaching itself uh, based upon sort of unreflective data because it will, we fear, and there's very good reason to fear this, um, reflect those biases, perpetuate them, and conceivably in instances, make them worse. So those are really, really um, difficult and important questions. It's very hard to know how this will shake out because the tech is relatively young. There's a huge amount of work being done on trying to make machine learning systems as understandable as possible. Um, I'll say that's in its infancy, but that's, I think, it's a little bit past infancy. There are incredibly smart people working on this. But mm -hmm. also because, from my point of view, um, the questions that are being brought to the fore. And it's wonderful that these questions are being brought to the fore, but the moral questions about fairness that are being brought to the fore are, um, are also making it clear just how, uh, how inconsistent we are in our understanding of fairness. Okay. This is not, it's just the way it is. It's a term that has developed rather informally over many, many, many years. And it means lots of things. Um, and so discussions about what constitutes fairness are difficult in part because we're not sure exactly in many cases 
exactly what we mean by fairness and because we disagree about what constitutes fairness. It's not, it's not obvious. It is when you're talking about how many cookies do you give to your kids? Do you give them, you know, everybody, all uh -huh. of them the same? That's easy. It gets far more difficult when you are forced to get specific and quantitative in order to instruct a computer, machine learning system, what so, sort of outcomes you want that will constitute fairness. That turns out to make fairness, the specificity required um, makes the questions of fairness come to the fore in ways that may be, that are intractable. And so it's a really so, uh, difficult and interesting and important uh, area. So I don't know in five years what will happen with that. Sorry, go ahead. Okay. No, it sounds, it sounds, it sounds like everything is the trolley problem, right? Everything is the trolley problem. You don't know, you don't know who to kill ultimately in terms of fairness. Um, so yes, sort of. Um, mm -hmm. So the trolley, uh, the good thing about the trolley problem is that it's so confined, you know, it's this weird setup on purpose uh, so that you can isolate mm -hmm. the different moral elements and the problem. So there's even in isolation, that problem turns out to be really hard because we don't agree about even what the factors are that should be weighed in considering uh, moral decisions, decisions about fairness. Mm -hmm. That's why people argue about the trolley problem. But the trolley problem is already designed to vastly simplify it. It's like a scientific experiment in which you, you, know, you artificially remove all of the variables except one, then you can test it. In real life, the trolley problem is, is simple compared to the actual problems of figuring out um, what, how, what, how you want to program autonomous vehicles, uh, driverless cars, um, mm -hmm. in incredibly complex systems like, say, cities. Mm -hmm. um, you know, people, are, we, we commonly um, will argue and settle through political means um, questions about the values we want a city to represent. And this goes all the way from uh, fair housing laws to, um, do you want to put in bike lanes? Because that's going to slow down the cars. Are you sure you want to do that? What are the benefits? And people will argue and they don't agree. And, and as you get further and further into it, the questions become more and more complicated. Do you want to let the bikes uh, run through this pedestrian's um, walkway or whatever? It gets so specific. It gets so difficult. The trade-offs are so hard to figure out as you have to confront the, the, the specifics of the problem. And with machine learning, the trolley problem is an easy abstraction. It only gets harder <laughs> as you look at the real-life situations. So a lot of folks that I've been talking to for this podcast in specific have, have basically said that a lot of our decision-making, a lot of the things that we have to think about as humans is going to be taken away from us, uh, leaving us to do presumably more creative things. But I suspect we're just going to look at more Instagram. Um, Wait, that's not creative? Is that, is that... Wait, that, that's, a, that's an excellent... I said, I said look, look, <laughs> look at more Instagram, not make Instagram. Um, is that... Is that the is that the case? Are we going to be are we going to lose our uh, are we going to lose some of our decision making uh, powers in this in this new world, or is it augmented? Or who 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 trumps who in this case? Uh, man, you, you never want to use that word because now the whole conversation is going <laughs> to. Um, who uh, back who, away uh, from the who, Trump who, hole? That's Trump hole. Oh, no, no. I'm not. We're I know, not I know, going I down the okay. Trump hole at all. Uh, um, so. I have no idea what will happen economically, and uh, I know there are many, many concerns, as well as people who are looking forward to it. I, I just have zero idea. I don't know if truck drivers, because trucks are likely to be one of the first uh, driverless vehicles licensed for the roads. 
for the highways and mm -hmm. trucks. Trucking plays a very important um, economic and social role in certain classes of Americans. And, not, you know, that's a really interesting, and important question. I have no idea. So I'm going to, I'm going to address mm -hmm. it totally differently. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, okay. There's a, so, so Socrates, fifth century BC argued against literacy, against people learning to read and write on two grounds. The first is you can't ask a book a question. And Socrates, as everyone knows, was all about the back and forth conversation. But the more relevant thing is that he said that mm -hmm. we would lose our memories. And he was 100% right about that. The, the Iliad is like 15,600 lines long. I, would, I mm -hmm. don't remember exactly because I've lost my memory, but it's you know, about that. And for centuries, it was memorized and passed down orally. And I defy, if you want to, go ahead. If you want to, you know, John, if you want to <laughs> recite the Iliad for me right now, we can't do that anymore, <laughs> right? Um, we lost our memory. And that's true. So in some, some sense, writing made us stupider. But on the other hand, that we all know, I think, that in fact, we have become far, far smarter because we've written things down and are able to build, you know, uh, aggregate this vast knowledge of knowledge and call upon it when needed and find it and share it. And with the internet, we hope we share it better and, and, and more widely and not just for the privileged. And even before mm -hmm. that, though, literacy made us smarter, even though it de-skilled us. It, it took away our memories. In the same way, uh, there's a philosopher, um, Andy Clark, uh, who, in, starting in the 1990s, has been arguing, I will not do justice to it, but the idea, basically, it's an extended mind theory. And the idea is, completely, I think, completely sensible, which is, you know, in the West, we thought for 2,500 years that we think in our heads. But in fact, if you look at what we do, we think out in the world with tools. And if you take physical tools... You take away the, a whiteboard from a mathematician and she can't do her work. Uh, you take away mm -hmm. the, the, the graph paper from an architect and, and likewise. Um, we think out in the world with tools. We've been doing this forever. Uh, the old shepherds who couldn't count, but they would put a stone in their hands for every sheep they took out and count the stones, uh, you know, remove stones as they came in. Now that's, that's thinking out in the world with objects and with tools. That's what we do. We do that with writing for example, and that's worked out okay. And in the same way, um, so this does not answer the economic question, but it does address a little bit the decisions question. So if we start using machine learning as a tool um, for, to make decisions, which we already do, right? I, I use Google Maps all the time because I have no sense of direction. It navigates me. I absolutely use it to make decisions for me because it's way better at it than I am. Not only because it has a better sense of direction, but it also knows where the traffic jams are because, you know, the, everybody's cell phone just about is uploading that data. So, you know, God bless us all. But it, it knows it has, it has a, you know, an overview of the world's highways and it's routing, it, it's doing load balancing to try to shift cars away from the jams and the rest of it. That's decision making. And good. I'm very happy to, ha to outsource that type of decision. If I'm a doctor, mm -hmm. um, in one scenario, the doctors get replaced by machine learning. I think we are extremely far away from that, but I think we are already in the position where the doctors already outsource. Of course they do. They outsource, as we all do, to machines and to other systems, part of their decision-making. And if, say, a machine learning system can flag areas of, say, a scan, you know, a, a CAT scan or something, 
that the doctor might have missed and suggest, you know, this looks like it. We, we the machine learning system, have seen this uh, associated with this or that, you know, thing, disease. Then maybe you should look into it. I mean, that's a type of partnership that I think is extremely valuable. And why wouldn't we want that? And why wouldn't we think that our joint decision making now is better? Just as a doctor well might look up in a book um, or online, of course, these days to see, huh, I wonder whatever. That's, mm -hmm. that's outsourcing our decision making, but we're all in favor of that because we live in a world in which knowledge is networked. We have access to the network and it helps us. So I don't, you know, I have no prediction about which decisions we will allow machine learning to make for us ultimately. You know, I could run off at the mouth, but I, I, no reason to believe anything, any, any, anything I believe about that. Um, but I am not, <laughs> in overall, not, I, I can be bothered. If it went some ways, um, I conceivably, like many people, would be bothered that we outsource something, I don't know, uh, sentencing. Uh, Prisoners. Mm -hmm. Although there's actually that's actually an interesting area too, because there is some evidence that in fact uh, that judges are um, highly biased, and if we can get machine learning systems to be less biased, the, the famous uh, research is that uh, sorry that judges issue more lenient sentences, uh, sorry worse sentences, stronger sentences, shortly before lunch. Presumably because yep. they're sort of hungry and grouchy, but I, who knows? But that, that seems to be a genuine correlation. So, you know, in any case, so I don't, there's certainly areas in which we are all going to be a little reluctant to let the machines make decisions, but there are tons and tons of areas where we will accept gratefully the help of, of machine learning systems. So we're looking, we're looking more for help. We're looking for augmented intelligence as opposed to artificial intelligence. I, yes. Right. So, and we've, Every bit of technology that we use to gather and share knowledge throughout our history augments our intelligence. The big mm -hmm. issue with machine learning is that its view of the world is one that it has constructed without being told, by, in some cases anyway, told by us what to look for, um, which can be, lead to startling perspectives. And when we cannot follow the complexity of the machine learning systems model, which can be incredibly, so many data points and so many connections that we can't, then we, we, lack, we can lack faith in the process by which it arrived at the decisions, its recommendations, and, and be afraid, rightfully, that those decisions are reflecting human biases and making things worse. Tell me, you, I'm sure you've been running around with a, a lot of cool scientists, so tell me, a, uh, tell me about some of the most interesting uh, machine learning uh, implementations you've seen? Uh, so I'll tell you one of the, uh, this is one of the most interesting, but it's not necessarily, you know, it's not the world changing one. Um, mm -hmm. So there is apparently a system that was given many, many, many retinal scans. And on the basis of those retinal scans, it was able to, you feed it a new one, and it's able to tell you things about the owner of the eyeball that we did not think was encoded in retinal scans. So, and I won't get this right, but I think one of the things is, uh, is gender, but there are other mm -hmm. features as well. And because I am not very fact-based, I don't remember. Um, mm -hmm. I did speak actually to a computer scientist about this a couple of days ago, and um, he, he, thinks, he thinks he's pretty up on this. 
Um, and he says, so far, humans have not been able to figure out what the tells are, how the system, what's different hmm. about this scan and that scan that says, oh, this, oh, this is a man. But we know that it works, right? You, you just run them and, and it works. That type of... Wow. Yes, and so you could. It's easy to imagine um, the same, exactly the same scenario where the the um, system is telling us that uh, oh, this eyeball, uh, they're going to come out down with. Uh, they're likely to come down because everything's in percentages, right? So it, there's a point seven, mm -hmm. seventy five percent chance that this person is going to come down with type two diabetes in five years. I made that up, right? But that's a plausible sort of sure, thing. Sure, sure. Might be. Um, at which point the patient who's informed of this by her doctor is going to have to make a decision. You know, do you want to start uh, stop eating sugars and starches because you're at risk for this? And in the case of in this made up example of type two diabetes, you know, uh, maybe you would. If, if it were, um, we need to do preventative surgery, um, then it becomes a lot, it becomes a lot harder. Um, nevertheless, mm -hmm. the fact that these, machines are able to find uh, correlations that seem to be correct, but that they cannot tell us and we cannot understand, at least at this point, how they came to it is raises all of these issues that I've been talking about, you know, about fairness and the rest of it, but also raises the prospect that the world doesn't work exactly the way that we think that it does, that the world is more... Um, what happens is determined by more detailed, more complex relationships and interactions among elements of features of you know, variables that we're not even thinking about. Um, mm -hmm. And that this can result in you know, a serious disease or a car swerving and saving a life or costing a life. Our model yeah. of how the world works has been based around relatively simple explanations and causes, relatively simple. Um, but that may that's turn interesting. Out to I was I was just thinking that simplification. There's more, yeah. There's more detail in the world than we than we can even imagine, and and we're missing <laughs> we're missing quite a bit of it. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and um, so this is so I'm now back at the very first thing, which is what my book is about. Sure. Which is in fact uh, mm -hmm. takes that as uh, as a starting point. Suppose the the machines are actually right in their type of model of the world, incredibly complex, generally not reduced mm -hmm. and simplified to a few simple laws that we can understand. Suppose that's right. And suppose we are coming to accept that that's right. How does that change how we think the world works and how we ought to work in the world? That's probably as clear as I've ever been about this book that I'm about to turn in, by the way. So what? I really... <laughs> well, I'll, I'll give you a transcript of this no, and you can, uh, you can, you can, you can, uh, one last question in terms of, in terms of, what you guys were thinking about at the beginning of the internet versus today has, has, have, are you disappointed? Are you happy that things are turning out the way they are? Um, looking at the, looking at the way media works, looking at the way the internet has changed in our lives. Is it a, is it a good, is it an overall good or an overall uh, medium or overall bad? Uh, yeah. So I think it's, I mean, if you want to average them, then it's, then it's uh, medium, but you know, that's like mm -hmm. having the world divided into, incredibly rich people and starving masses yeah, and yeah, saying, yeah. you know, overall, it's good. On yeah. average, everybody's happy. Um, <laughs> so on, on the one hand, I feel like there are enough voices and really strong, wonderful voices who are 
uh, informing us and alerting us about the very serious problems that the internet is engendering. Mm -hmm. um, and these are voices that uh, we have not heard from from traditional media. Um, and so you don't need another white guy talking about this. Uh, I, I think that that's right. On the other, so on the other hand, I, I do feel that at times it's my role as an old man uh, who early on was touting in the internet and the web that there is mm -hmm. a role for some of us to say, no, that's absolutely, you, you're right. There, there's, it's a, I'm not sure how much cursing you're allowed, but I have a friend who uh, refers to the internet of shit. You know, I mean, there's huge, huge issues. Everybody who listens to this knows about. On the other mm -hmm. hand, we should also at times remember that although this is, this is the greatest time in human history to care about knowledge, to want to be smart and knowledgeable. It's also the greatest time in human history to be a complete idiot. That's what you want to do. Mm -hmm. This is the golden, golden age of idiocy. <laughs> but, and, and that's, we know about that. It's also important to remember how much better the world is in so many ways because we can hear these voices. There is so much more knowledge available. That knowledge can be contested and contextualized. It can also be stupidly absorbed and turn you into a hate monger and a, a neo-Nazi, mm -hmm. but it doesn't have to. So I find that I'm spending, I participate in the conversations about what's gone wrong. I, I would never want to downplay that or back away from it or even distract attention from it. I mm -hmm. do think it's worthwhile remembering how much creativity, knowledge, kindness, and goodness the internet has also um, enabled. Beautiful. All right, David, thank you for this. When is the book coming out? It's on the in fall 2019. 2019. Okay, so we have a little bit of time, but we'll uh, we'll, we'll get you back on when it comes out, and you can uh, you can flog it. A little I bit. can denounce everything I just said. <laughs> this has been Technotopia. I'm John Biggs. Thank you, David, for joining us. This has been amazing. Oh, thank you. Perfect. Technotopia is brought to you by Happy Fun Corp. Happy Fun Corp is a design-driven technology company in Brooklyn, New York, that specializes in building mobile and web applications for startups and Fortune 500 companies. Whether it's a new mobile or web application that will help people experience the Internet in a fun new way, or software that will interface with a new piece of top-secret hardware, Happy Fun Corp is always up to the challenge. Big or small, Happy Fun Corp loves building software and loves working with great people. Come build with them. HappyFunCorp.com Technotopia is presented by your host, John Biggs. It was produced by Rick Barr of Bar26 Entertainment at ricksvoice.com. It appears every Friday at noon, and we're always looking to talk to interesting people. Tweet at John Biggs if you'd like to join us on the show.